Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I'll be your host for this episode. This episode is part two of the Virginia Co-Ed Killer series, so if you have not listened to part one, I highly recommend it. I'm going to start about halfway into the investigation, and I've already covered the main case for this, at least the story behind the main case. So if you haven't listened to part one, part two is going to be a little confusing for you, so I recommend going back and checking out that's episode 31, The Virginia Co-Ed Killer Part 1. If you would like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at www.truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email the host directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. Finally, if you can, please support the show via Patreon. Any donation level helps, and it will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast. And I have plans to expand the podcast in the future, and any donations will definitely help with that. And any donors that would like to will receive a shout-out in a future podcast and a thank-you message from the host. So that is True Blue Crime Productions on Patreon. Also, for no cost, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to. Thanks so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. So just a quick summary, in part one of the series, we talked about the 2014 missing persons case of Hannah Graham, a University of Virginia student. We learned that during the initial part of the investigation, a suspect was developed based on video surveillance and eyewitness reports. So in part one, we looked into that man's past and found, uh, his name is Jesse Leroy Matthew Jr. We found two rape allegations against him while he was a football player at Liberty University, a sexual assault that was confirmed to be perpetrated by him via DNA, an abduction, sexual assault, and homicide that was confirmed to be perpetrated by him, and several missing women in the area that are believed to be victims of Jesse Leroy Matthew Jr. All of these crimes, the ones known perpetrated crimes, would not be linked to Matthew until after his DNA is collected in the Hannah Graham case. So we will continue with the cases that are possibly linked to him and then finish our breakdown and analysis of the Graham case. Part one left off the suspect's timeline just after the case of Morgan Harrington. She was abducted during a Metallica concert in October of 2009. Matthew was known to be operating a taxi in the area and Harrington was last seen trying to hitchhike after getting denied re-entry to the concert. Her body was discovered on a remote part of a farm just outside Charlottesville, the city where Matthew operated the taxi and where the concert had been held. DNA recovered from the scene where the remains were found would definitively link Matthew to this crime. There is one case from 2009 that doesn't fit the pattern of Matthew, but is a case I hope to be able to cover someday. So oftentimes when I'm researching these cases, I'll actually come across cases possibly linked to the suspect and it's actually cases that are on my list of cases to get to a lot of them are on the unsolved side and i i promised to always make the cases under this program solved cases i just think it sets people up for a full episode knowing that there's going to be closure at the end of the episode my plan is as of right now and sorry to digress so far from the story but it's it's on the tip of my tongue right now to talk about um i'm trying to get into crime con 2023 which will be down in orlando florida in september uh i've 
put in an application and paid my registration fee and I'm just crossing my fingers hoping that I'm going to get into CrimeCon. And the goal was always to have a hundred episodes of this episode, or sorry, hundred episodes of this podcast done by the time I would go to CrimeCon just so I have this hopefully decent following and a whole bunch of episodes for people to listen to and catch up if they find me at CrimeCon and want to listen to the podcast. And then the idea is if CrimeCon is a success and everybody is still liking this podcast, that I would do a an unsolved version of the podcast and start to juggle between doing the solved cases and then an unsolved under a separate podcast. And then again, depending on where financially things are with Patreon, it's possible I might have to go on a subscription service for the unsolved cases uh, so that I can continue to make podcasts but keep these free and have those be subscription. I haven't decided that far down. It's, it's Again, it's a few months down the road. I have to get into CrimeCon first, and this podcast needs to continue to grow as it's doing. So, But basically... I do have a list of ongoing unsolved cases that I want to cover under that unsolved podcast. And this is the one that I'm going to talk about here is actually one of them. And it's going to be on August 26th of 2009, a couple of months before the disappearance of Cassandra Morton and the murder of Morgan Harrington. A young couple were sitting around a campfire in Caldwell Fields, which is about two hours south of Charlottesville. While they're sitting around this campfire, an unknown person opened fire on them with a 30-30 rifle killing them both. Their murder remains unsolved, but it is worth mentioning because it's an unsolved murder in the area around the time Matthew was very active. So it's a completely long shot, and no pun intended there, but a completely long shot that, that Matthew would have anything to do with this case. It doesn't fit his MO. However, it's just one of those things where because he was so active in in the late summer and early fall of 2009 any case that's within a relatively short drive of charlottesville is going to be looked at as potentially involving jesse matthew so again i only mention it because it's an unsolved double homicide in an area where somebody was known to be committing homicides and hopefully someday there will be closure and there will be an answer in that case and again it's a case i want to cover at some point on the unsolved or if between now and whenever i can get around to it it does get solved then i'll I'll cover it on this one but as of this point it's unsolved and that was almost 14 years ago so again just just worth mentioning as we're covering uh, jesse matthew here In July of 2010, the DNA link between the unidentified suspect in the 2009 homicide case, which was Morgan Harrington, was linked to the 2005 Fairfax, Virginia sexual assault case. So how this works is investigators, when they get DNA and they send it to whatever crime lab, whether it's a large department has their own, some smaller departments usually use a county or state crime lab but however that dna if they're able to verify that that dna is going to be suspect dna and in the cases of sexual assaults or sexual assault murders it's usually semen or suspected semen or sometimes blood or or fingernail clippings or whatever it may be if they can verify that that's likely suspect dna 
they're going to enter it into CODIS, which is the national database for DNA profiles linked to crimes. So sitting in CODIS is a whole bunch of DNA profiles that are attached to crimes with unknown perpetrators. And at the same time, CODIS is always running checks of that those DNA profiles against new profiles coming in, whether they be known from offenders or unknown from cases. And when CODIS matches up DNA, whether it be from an offender or from another unknown case, it's going to alert investigators saying, hey, you've got the same DNA on these two cases. So that's in July of 2010, CODIS is telling investigators, whoever committed that sexual assault in 2005 in Fairfax, Virginia, is also going to be your suspect for your 2009 homicide and sexual assault of Morgan Harrington. So investigators at this point know they've got a suspect that's been active in the area for roughly four or five years and has committed that sexual assault and then now this murder, but they don't have an offender with a matching DNA profile. So on September 13, 2010, a 19-year-old female named Samantha Ann Clark is reported missing after leaving her house in Orange County, Virginia, about an hour northeast of Charlottesville. The last man to see her alive, Randy Taylor, would later be convicted of a different teen's murder, but Samantha's case is still open. And this is something we touched on in the Terror in California series, where criminals are not adhering to some type of murder schedule or anything where two of them are not allowed to operate in the same area at the same time. So what we often get is cases where, especially with serial killers, if you have two serial killers operating in the same area, eventually when you identify those serial killers, it can be difficult to say which killer committed which crimes if they have similar MOs, unless you've got DNA or fingerprint evidence or something along those lines. So now in this case, we're gonna talk about this Randy Taylor a couple times he's last known to seen Samantha Ann Clark alive and then there's another girl we'll talk about that that he's last known to see to be with before she dies that he's actually going to be convicted of her murder so even though Samantha Ann Clark's disappearance is very similar to some of these other disappearances linked to Matthew there's also the possibility that you have somebody else operating in the area at the time that is going to commit similar crimes and so in reality some of these cases that are potentially attributed to Matthew could actually be attributed to this Taylor guy as well so but since we're talking about Matthew we'll continue to focus on Matthew in cases that are potentially his which includes on November 20th 2012 another teenager 19 year old Deshad Laquan Smith disappeared the very big difference here is that Deshad's going to be a biological male. He was a gay man who liked to dress up as a woman, and he was last seen walking down a street in Charlottesville. Now, Deshad's case is probably the least likely of these really similar cases to be related to Matthew, but Deshad's case is still worth mentioning, not just because of the possibility that Matthew could be a suspect, but also because all missing people deserve to be discussed whenever possible. So. We'll kind of break down to Shad's case. I know it's a sidestep from what we've been talking about, but it's a case maybe I'll cover too in the unsolved if 
because there's there's some interesting twists and turns here, and then I'll I'll break it down at the end. But Deshad left that day to meet up with a man named Eric McFadden. The two had been exchanging texts and calls for weeks, but had not yet met in person. McFadden had a girlfriend, and would later allege the meetup was part of an extortion by Deshad, as McFadden had been told to meet with Deshad and bring money, or Deshad would tell McFadden's girlfriend about the online relationship. Now, these are allegations made by McFadden, and they were never proven, but what was, I guess, eventually proven was that they were supposed to meet that day, Deshad and McFadden, and McFadden initially denied meeting Deshad, but later said he did meet Deshad, but didn't know what happened to him. And as of 2019, the last anyone has heard from McFadden was the year 2013, when he sent an email to his girlfriend. He was reported missing by his mother in 2019, six years after she last heard from him, and police believe McFadden is dead. So, I mean, there's a lot of complications there when you're trying to compare it to Matthew's case. He, Deshad does go missing from Charlottesville, so that's kind of where everything gets tied in together, is that he's walking alone at night. He likes to dress as a woman, so he presented... And from the pictures online, he did have a convincing look of a woman when he was dressed and, and makeup was done and that kind of stuff as a woman. So somebody driving at night seeing him walking down the road would not assume that he was a, a biological male. So there is the theory out there that Matthew could have attempted to pick up Deshad to give him a ride somewhere and commit a sexual assault, at which point Matthew found out Deshad was a biological male, which likely would have enraged him and caused him to kill Deshad just out of anger and frustration. So there is that belief that that is a possible outcome. It's also very possible that McFadden decided to silence Deshad because of this supposed extortion or just because he was afraid that his girlfriend would find out but then the fact that mcfadden kind of he's he's toying with investigators after deshad goes missing and it's for a few months like he moves back up to new york decides he tells police he's going to come back to virginia but then changes his mind it doesn't and then eventually he completely disappears off the radar so it's possible that mcfadden committed suicide somewhere where nobody's ever found his body it's possible McFadden is very good at going on the run and has assumed a new identity. I mean, nobody really knows. All that they know at this point is that both Deshad and McFadden are missing. Neither of them have ever been found. And the Lincoln is that, again, it's a situation where Deshad likely would have been alone late at night in downtown Charlottesville area and he's never seen from again which just matches what we know happened to morgan harrington and then there's also in that case uh, several of deshad's roommates were looked at after the disappearance because one was using deshad's food stamps another one was found to be wearing a locket belonging to deshad so that case again in of its own is probably its own episode to cover it just it's brought up in the discussion of cases potentially linked to matthews just because of the circumstances surrounding it 
And again, it's always worth mentioning these cases, like Deshad's case, because all it takes is one person listening that remembers something back from 2012 or has something they've wanted to say and just hasn't had the courage to say it or call the police or do whatever they need to do to break one of these cases wide open. So there's family out there that's been waiting for 11 years to know what happened to Deshad and just it doesn't hurt to bring these cases up even if it's not related to Matthew it hopefully does something for Deshad's case. On August 3rd 2013 17-year-old Alexis Murphy went missing from a gas station in Lovingston, Virginia about 35 miles outside of Charlottesville. Her car was found in Charlottesville, and gas station footage would show Randy Taylor, the man mentioned in the 2010 disappearance of Samantha Clark, as the last person with Murphy. A search of Taylor's trailer revealed evidence Murphy had been in his trailer and possible signs of a struggle, which was an earring, broken fingernail, and some blood. Taylor would later be convicted of her murder, but after Matthew's crimes, came to light, his lawyers tried to appeal and use Matthew as the likely suspect. The appeal was denied and most people believe Taylor was guilty of the crime. Murphy's remains were found on a property in Taylor's hometown in 2020, strengthening the belief he was responsible for her murder. Again, this is one of those cases where there isn't any evidence to link Matthew to it and in fact all the evidence points to this Randy Taylor as being responsible for Alexis Murphy's disappearance and and murder, but in playing devil's advocate and looking at all these cases, there's always the chance, albeit a small one, but there's always a chance that there's a scenario in which Matthew could be involved in this murder, and in this case, you could see where if, even if Murphy was in Taylor's trailer, even if there was some type of an altercation, and let's just say Murphy left and started walking down the road, and she, you know, Matthew came across her, and then he abducted her and killed her. I know it's one of those, all the stars have to align, and she would have to be the most unlucky person in the world to escape one potential murderer and end up in the, the clutches of another. I'm just saying, in some universe, it's possible, albeit a very small likelihood. But if that were the case, and I don't think Taylor claimed that. I think he claimed he didn't, she was never in his trailer. And again, all the evidence in the end pointed towards Taylor being responsible. But before her body was found, and I'm assuming it was found with some kind of a connection to Taylor. I couldn't find. It just said it was a private property in in Taylor's hometown. So I don't know if it was his property or property related to him, where kind of everything ties together and kind of eliminates Matthew as a suspect here. But again, anybody who goes missing within that couple hours around Charlottesville is going to be looked at as a potential connection to Matthew. And in this case... He was used as a, you know, the quote-unquote other guy defense that is often used in in some of these cases. That all brings us to September 12th of 2014. So this is the day, technically the night before Hannah goes missing, but 
it's a Friday night into a Saturday morning, and she goes missing in the early mornings of that Saturday, and this is what's going on on that Friday. So Matthew had spent part of the day volunteering as a youth football coach at a private Christian school, a position he had been vetted for via a background check. But keep in mind, again, none of his past crimes have come to light, and the rape allegations were kept under wraps at Liberty University. After coaching that day, Matthew began an evening of drinking and then began his predatory behavior. His evening started at a bar called the Lazy Parrot. While at this bar, he approached a lone woman and began trying to make conversation with her. During this time, he repeatedly touched her hands to the point she sat on them, and she rebuffed all of his advances, telling Matthew that she had a boyfriend and she refused to give him her number. A witness testified the behavior was so overt that someone in the bar confronted him about it and Matthew told the witness that he was just trying to meet girls. At 11.18 p.m., Matthew was in a bar called Rapture and purchased three rum drinks. Twelve minutes later, he was in a bar called The Blue Light. Sometime between 11.30 and 11.45, he met two women at this bar. Shortly after meeting these women for the first time, he picked both of them up, grabbing under their buttocks and lifting them up in the air. This was done without their consent and made them both very uncomfortable. They pushed him away, but he continued to try and touch them, so they left the Blue Light Bar for a bar named Tempo. Matthew purchased one last drink at the Blue Light at 11.57pm and then left for the Tempo Bar. The women who had left to get away from him once again found Matthew making unwanted advances on them. One of the women had removed her boot because her foot hurt, and he grabbed her bare foot and started caressing it. He then grabbed the other woman's bare leg and looked at her in a way that she described was crazy when she told him not to touch her. The women left Tempo due to Matthew's behavior. Matthew returned to Rapture sometime before 12.51 a.m. and approached a female acquaintance and grabbed her buttocks without consent. This caused her to try and hide, at which point he sought her out and tried to grab her again. Someone witnessed this and confronted him about his behavior, and he closed his tab at 1.03 a.m. It was after he left Rapture that investigators linked the security footage of Hannah walking unsteadily down the sidewalk to Matthew making an about-face and following her. This is also where the eyewitnesses would say they saw Matthew put his arm around Hannah and tell the witness to hush when they questioned his behavior. Feeling something wasn't right, the witnesses followed Matthew and Hannah to Tempo Bar where they saw Matthew order a drink for Hannah at the bar. When Matthew saw the witness, he asked if he could buy her a drink too, but she refused. The witnesses then left the bar and one said to the other that Matthew was going to blank her up. Matthew closed out their tab at Tempo around 1.10 a.m. and they passed several security cameras together. A witness said they saw Hannah separate herself from Matthew as they were walking. Matthew continued to follow her before he ran up and put his arm around Hannah. The witness would say that at this time Matthew did not look friendly. Witnesses saw them stop by an orange Chrysler Sebring and Matthew unlocked the passenger door. Hannah looked at the car and she yelled at Matthew that she wasn't getting into the car with him and asked if the car was stolen. A witness said Hannah's voice sounded scared. As Hannah was still missing at this point in the investigation, an effort was made to see where Matthew and Hannah traveled using Matthew's cell phone pings, but investigators found that Matthew had put his phone in airplane mode at this time. And I should mention, I guess, before we get into kind of the nuts and bolts of the investigation here, 
there's a lot of witnesses seeing this behavior and it's enough for them to note something's not right at this time matthew is a six foot two i think 270 pound uh, former college football player and it was said that when he grabbed those women in the bar those two women to lift him up in the air he did it without much effort and I, again i don't know the size of the women and it doesn't you know list the how much they weighed or anything like that but even if the women are 100 pounds it's still lifting 200 pounds up in the air rather easily so it goes to show that the witnesses are seeing this large guy following and, and hannah wasn't small she was five foot eleven five foot ten five foot eleven somewhere in there but she was she was very thin athletic so she wouldn't have weighed probably much more than 140 pounds so he's almost twice her weight and he just he's got alcohol in him but she's obviously intoxicated and it's just one of those scenes that people are looking at this and it's sticking in their mind because it just doesn't quite add up it doesn't look like they're together he's acting strange he's acting what was the term somebody used doesn't look friendly and it was enough that one of the witnesses, I think the one that said he didn't look friendly, saw the interaction of the car. He had he was walking to his vehicle that was like a block or two away. And he said he got in his car and then he wanted to drive past to see if they were still outside the car and arguing. And if they were, he was, this witness was going to stop and check things out. By the time the witness got there, the car was gone. So he just assumed that this female had gotten in the car with this guy and so maybe they were together in the end but this is this is the last time anybody's going to see uh, hannah alive other other than matthew now a forensic review of matthew's phone showed that his last call was made at 12 31 a.m on the night hannah went missing and did not receive any calls or texts until 4 26 p.m that day the phone was never turned off, but didn't communicate with any cell towers or receive any texts. At 4.26, he took the phone out of airplane mode and made a phone call, at which time several incoming texts arrived to his phone. It was also said that Matthew's phone was recovered by law enforcement during a search warrant of his apartment, and his phone was found to have the SIM card removed. It's said in the one report that it was likely that he put his phone in airplane mode, but then it showed another thing in the search warrant saying that the phone had the sim card removed and ultimately it's kind of like the same thing your phone will still operate without the sim card in there but it's not going to be able to make any phone calls or receive any texts so whether he removed the card sim card or put it in airplane mode it's kind of the same thing he it's a purposeful action to make it harder to track the cell phone the search warrant was served on September 19th, six days after Hannah was last seen and five days after she was reported missing. Hannah's DNA was found on Matthew's pasture side door and a mixture of Hannah and Matthew's DNA was found on a pair of shorts in his apartment. On September 20th, Matthew walked into police headquarters but asked to speak to a lawyer before he talks to investigators. He would end up hiring an attorney on the spot and then leave the police station at high speed without talking to anyone. He goes to the DMV to apply for a new driver's license as he claims to have lost his original. He then withdraws all the cash from his bank account and leaves town. On September 21st, investigators publicly say they want to talk to Jesse Matthew Jr. 
and on September 23rd, Matthew is publicly named a suspect in Hannah's disappearance. The following day, on September 24th, a woman called the non-emergency line in Galveston, Texas. Roughly 20-hour drive and 1,300 miles away from Charlottesville, she was reporting a man living in a tent on the beach. When officers arrived, they find Jesse Matthew Jr. and take him into custody. His vehicle is parked in the nearby parking lot and also taken for evidence. Investigators could now confirm Matthew's DNA, and when they run it, they receive hits and codas for the 2009 murder of Morgan Harrington and the 2005 sexual assault in Fairfax, Virginia. In October of 2014, Matthew's defense team tries to get prosecutors and surviving family members to agree to a 25-year prison term for all the charges if he shows investigators where Hannah's body is located. The families did meet, but refused to accept the deal. Later that month, on October 18th, Hannah's remains were found on a rural farm property outside of Charlottesville. Her remains were found only six miles from where Morgan Harrington's remains were found back in 2010. Two days later, Matthews indicted for the 2005 sexual assault in Fairfax, Virginia. And then on February, uh, February of 2015, Matthew was charged with Graham's murder. And in May of 2015, the charges are increased to capital murder as prosecutors announce they will seek the death penalty. Trial is set for July 5th of 2016. On June 10th, 2016, Matthew pled guilty via an Alford plea to the Fairfax, Virginia sexual assault. In September of 2015, Matthew is charged with Harrington's murder. On October 2nd, 2015, Matthew is sentenced to three life terms for the Fairfax, Virginia attack. And then in 2016, on February 29th, Matthew pled to Harrington's murder, accepting a plea deal. And just a few days later, on March 2nd, Matthew pled to Graham's murder and accepted a plea deal. For each of the murders, he was sentenced to four life terms in prison without the possibility of parole. And now I read this in several locations where he had been sentenced for three life terms for the Fairfax, Virginia attack, and then it said two different ways. One said he got four terms for both of his plea deals for the murders, and another one said he got an additional four years just for the plea deals. So ultimately, the plea deals are going to include no parole so he's never going to be able to get out of prison so it, again it's one of those points that doesn't really matter whether it's seven total years for or seven total life sentences or whether it's 11 total life sentences it, what what ultimately the sentence is is life in prison until he he dies and matthew was diagnosed with stage four cancer in 2019 and was transferred to a secure medical facility, but as of this podcast in 2023, no news of his medical condition has been given, and he's also not reported to have died. I think the most recent report that I found was a report in 2022 stating he was still battling the cancer. I can only assume that he's either still battling at this point, or he's maybe in remission, but none of that information is available. So we kind of threw a lot of information at the end of this case. There's a lot of moving parts going on there, but I, I didn't want to break it up too much to discuss it because it, I wanted to bring some closure to all of the cases at once. But a couple points I want to bring up that I think are worth talking about is one is 
a lot of people question why he was let free that day that he came in and got the lawyer why they didn't arrest him and part of it was so they had they had the evidence of him but, you know it's going to take a couple days to to gather up all the security footage to talk to all these eyewitnesses for everybody to come forward and for them to build this case against Matthew to the point that they're pretty sure and and I would say more like 100% sure that Matthew is the last person to see her alive. So after a few days, they're going to be able to write up the search warrant and serve it on Jesse Matthew because you have to have probable cause in order to write and serve a warrant. So they've got to establish that first, and that's going to be established through all the eyewitnesses and the security footage and all that kind of stuff showing that Hannah was with Matthew that night and now nobody has seen or heard from from Hannah so they're able to convince a judge to sign a search warrant but at that point there's not enough evidence there to, to show that he actually committed a crime against her the search warrant is to allow them to gather the evidence to get an arrest warrant and unlike you see in TV DNA is not an instantaneous test it takes a while to go through the process in order for the profile to be built and identified and everything and this can take 24 to 48 hours depending on which process is used and the equipment in the lab and and the availability of lab personnel now in minor cases and i say minor in air quotes like burglaries car thefts that kind of stuff like that stuff hits the back burner of these DNA logs. Eventually it'll get processed, but it may be months before a DNA profile from a burglary or or, or card um, theft or anything like that is looked at. Um, cases of missing persons, murders, they're gonna be at the top of the list. But that doesn't mean that there's a way for them to speed up the process to where it is like on TV where it's you know half hour, hour later, or even 15 minutes. Sometimes on the TV, you know, they, they touch the swab to a, uh, a reader and the screen prints out the DNA profile of the suspect and it, uh, another computer shows them exactly where that suspect is currently located at that time. So that's not reality, that's TV. Reality is it's gonna t there's gonna be a turnaround and they're not gonna be able to get an arrest warrant for Matthew until his DNA can be proven to be the same DNA as these other cases that he's potentially involved in as well as matching the DNA that's that's being found on the search warrant that's matching you know along with Hannah's DNA so they've got to get all of this figured out and put into an arrest warrant and it's in that time period that Matthew makes his escape so before they're able to issue the arrest warrant he's out of town and you can't just arrest somebody on suspicion of committing a crime You've got, whether it be 48 hours or um, some states have a 36-hour rule, others are 48 hours, to get that person charged with a crime. And prosecutors know there's no way that they're going to have this entire case put together in that amount of time. So instead of trying to hold them on charges that they can't hold them on, he's let free 
and then this manhunt begins. Luckily, it's not very long before he's captured, and he's captured without incident, and as far as we know, he didn't commit any crimes in those couple days that he was on the run. But one thing to note here is in the arrest warrant, or the, uh, the arrest affidavit, it said that it made a point of saying that Hannah's phone was in her pocket at some point. She, it was, she was seen with a phone in her back pocket while she was sitting at the bar. And then there's no other reference to her phone at all in the affidavit or any of the, the research that I did, which other than the fact of them saying her phone was not recovered at the at her body scene or in his apartment so the belief is that he must have powered down the phone and then threw it out of the car somewhere while still in in charlottesville before it started paying off cell phone towers and this is this is showing the evolution of a killer the the fact that in 2010 or 20 or 2009 sorry when morgan harrington was uh, abducted and killed they were able to go back and look at his cell phone records and put him in the area where her remains were found at the time uh, that she would have gone missing the, ni the night that she was taken from the metallica concert and while he couldn't have known that they were going to do this for that case going back that far it makes me think that at some point he watched a TV show or a news report or caught wind somehow that police could track people through cell phones. And so the next time, or if this is the next time, or if there were times before that, but at some point he made the decision to make it impossible for police to track his cell phone while he's going to be committing these crimes, which also leads a lot of people to believe that he knew as soon as Hannah was getting in his car that he was going to kill her because why go through all this effort to hide where you're going, what you're going to do if you're not worried about the police sometime looking for it down the road. So again, it shows that these killers evolve over time. They learn, they learn tactics. A lot of the times it happens in prison and when they get out of prison, they, they've learned from their mistakes. They've talked to other criminals about how they got caught other prisoners and, and and adapted their methods to try to defeat law enforcement but in this case as i've said before i don't matthew wasn't in jail as far as we know or prison during this entire time so he just must be hearing things figuring things out on his own ways to make it more difficult for police to track him when he commits these crimes in the future Another thing I noticed from the investigation, they made a point in several of the, of the news stories to talk about how close uh, Harrington's remains were to where he dumped Hannah's remains. And which makes me believe, again, killers have a pattern. So if he is related to any of these other missing women, there's a good chance that somewhere in that farm area outside of town that there are more bodies that if they are found will likely be linked to Matthews just based on these serial killers often having a dumping ground for their victims that they're comfortable with, that they're familiar with. And then as a final note, 
I, I just wanted to research how many people go missing uh, per year and never found. So from a national standpoint, it was something along the lines of like 620,000 people are reported missing each year, but then it said somewhere about 618,000 of them are found in some manner. So either they return home, they're located, or their remains are found and identified. So that leaves nationwide somewhere around 2,000 people every year that go missing. And, and I think this was just adults. It might have been people in general, but when I looked at Virginia, because I wanted to narrow it down and just see what it, what the numbers would be for Virginia, Virginia stated they had about 20 adults go missing a year on average. And that was adults 18 and over. I couldn't find any statistics for under 18. So if we just look at adults alone, that means that in the time period where Matthew was assaulting women in Virginia, so 2000, just to say 2004 to 2014, in that 10 years, 200 women, or sorry, 200 people, some of them are men, but went missing in that time period. And we talked about six, seven, eight of them or so in in the last two episodes, but that still leaves 190 plus potential people that investigators wouldn't even know to link to Matthew unless the remains are found and, and somehow it could be traced back to, to Matthew. So this is why it's so difficult to look at these serial killers and say we definitively know that we have all the, the, the victims of this serial killer. There's, there's so many people that are, whether it be um, drug users, sex workers, sex, people who are sex trafficked, that by no fault of their own, they get moved from one state to another, that they're missing for years and years and, and people don't know to report them missing or they just they, they they hope that they're okay and there's but there is no reports out there about them so again it, it's so difficult to say that we know all of the people that that Matthew uh, has victimized and as I talked about yesterday there may be plenty of women out there who were assaulted by Matthew that didn't want to come forward and deal with all this the, the, the negative stuff that comes with reporting a sexual assault. There may be several of these missing people that police don't even know were in the Charlottesville area when Matthew uh, predated on them. And there's just too many gaps in Matthew's timelines of these killings and, and these sexual assaults for me to believe that the only three crimes that he was found guilty of are the only three crimes that he committed. And, I, and I'm not saying the stuff back in 2000 with Liberty University in 2003. Those were obviously crimes that were not investigated properly. I'm saying the stuff that he's been convicted of from 2005 to 2014, he's only been convicted of of the two murders and the one sexual assault. And I can't believe that in that roughly 10-year time frame those are the only three women that he victimized via sexual assault and or abduction homicide as we go on it'll be interesting if more remains are found in that area if they're ever linked back to him or if the stage four cancer finally takes this monster off this planet and as some form of a deathbed confession he tells investigators or family or somebody about some other cases 
and bring some closure to these families. I don't expect it. Uh, it's only something that I could hope for, just like I said, for the sake of the family so they can get some closure. So, But that's it for now on the case of Jesse Matthew Jr., the near the Virginia co-ed killer. If there are any updates on this case down the road, if, if he were to pass away and confess to anything or more cases are attributed to him, I'll likely do some type of a short update episode down the road. But as for now, that's all the information we have. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. Thanks everyone for listening. Have a great day. Talk to you later. Goodbye.